I invite you to pray with me? Lord, we come before you today asking that your word would speak to our hearts. That your word would bring light to areas of our lives, of our hearts that we so often have given up on. That we've followed the wisdom of the world or that we just haven't brought to your, to your light. And Lord, in the midst of all the things in life that distract, that confound, that disturb us, in the midst of news of yet another shooting in Buffalo this week, our hearts clamor for justice and our hearts clamor for your, your light to shine in darkness and to guide us in how, how then shall we live and how shall we be your people. Lord, that that light would shine on us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to sit. We'll be reading the scripture in just a moment. Got all kinds of batteries here. You think I'm going to run out of power? <laughs> um, you know, there's, um, there's a lot that we see in um, the world around us with people living kind of double lives. Have, have you noticed that? So much where you often can't really tell about someone at first impressions. So there's a movie that came out not too long ago, starred uh, Tom Hanks, Leo DiCaprio, called Catch Me As You Can. You all remember that movie? It was based on, on supposed real-life story of Frank Abagnale. And so in the movie, we see that, and it's based on, on true story, apparently, that uh, he was able to cash $2.5 million in checks that he made it appear as if they were payroll checks from TWA, that he logged in mileage in flying over 2 million miles where he would just walk on a plane as if he were a pilot because he had a, the uniform and so forth, that, that then when he got tired of that, he worked for two semesters as a PhD in sociology and literally taught lectures at, at Brigham Young University, and then that he worked as a pediatrician in Georgia for a while and actually headed up a whole like uh, shift uh, that he passed the bar and worked as an assistant state attorney in Louisiana. And then he was eventually arrested and was the youngest person to escape from U.S. penitentiary. So that's like the story, and it's amazing. And, and it, through the movie, you kind of find yourself rooting for him because he seems so charming, right? And he seems as so clever. He, after... He appeared in talk shows. He was on the, uh, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was on a number of TV shows, uh, a lot of speaking gigs. And the truth of the matter is that, yes, he was a con man, and he continued to con because all of that is either completely patently false or greatly exaggerated. In fact, he did cash some checks, a total of 10, that totaled about $1,500. He never went to penitentiary. He never passed the bar. He never worked in a hospital. 
He went to Brigham Young University once as a guest lecturer, and yet he was able to scam so many people about his, the exaggerated part of his story. And so he continues to be a scammer. And some are still charmed by his ability to weave a lie and to live a false life. Why is this so compelling to us? It makes me wonder and think about that. Why is it so compelling to hear these stories of people accomplishing, even if it's, you know, he said there was no, uh, in his movie, he says he never stole from people. In fact, most of his thefts were from private individuals, not from organizations. And yet, at some level, I think many of us want a fantasy life. At some levels, many of us want these great stories of our life and, and, to, and to live that. And you know, the thing is that Scripture really resists that impulse of having a fantasy life. Because Scripture could have easily painted, as a matter of fact, a lot of people's their criticism of the Bible, without knowing it, is that the Bible is a collection of myth and fables and legends. And yet there's more reality in the life of the people that, who we read about in Scripture, more transparency about their flaws and their sins and their failings than we often get in our own personal interactions. It's a lot more than most people are prepared to handle. You see, Scripture is about real people with real struggles in real life. See, so many of us think about Christianity in terms of what we do on the weekends or on some evenings. And yet our life as disciples of Christ extends to every portion of our life. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage for this morning out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. I believe it'll be up on on the board in front of you. You can remain seated, seated for this. Uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So before we jump in, uh, some of you may be visiting with us today. Uh, I am not Ben Turner. <laughs> I'm not the pastor of this church. My name is Oscar Medina. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm honored with the privilege of sharing God's word with you this day, and humbled that God would uh, see fit to give me this opportunity. And I appreciate your prayers as we dig into this passage. One of the things that's important is to really understand the context whereby Paul is starting to address these topics of parenthood and this topic of masters and bondservants or slaves. 
And, and the, uh, the context is that earlier in chapter 5, uh, Paul uh, says this, but be filled with the Spirit. This is in verse 17. And then after that, there are four participles that he's describing how to be filled or what is the result of being filled. And so the four of them are addressing one another. This is Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns, singing to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. And then the last one is submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. And then after that, submitting to one another, then he talks about, that's the context in which he brings up wives and husbands and parents and all the rest, ending up with the armor of God. So that's kind of the picture that is being uh, played out before us. And in, in that, as part of that conversation of as a result, or as you are being filled with the Spirit, these are some of the ways in which we submit to each other. And the key is, as to the Lord. So we see in uh, 5.22, he talks about wives, and he says, as to the Lord. In verse 25 of chapter 5, he talks to husbands and says, as Christ loved the church. In chapter 6, verse 1, he talks to children and says, in the Lord. Verse 4, parents, instruction of the Lord. To servants or bondservants, as you would Christ. And to masters, just as your master in heaven. You see, the issue is not how we're told to behave, but how we view our relationships. See, when, when you're centered in Christ, and when your relationships are keyed to relating to people as to the Lord, then behavior takes care of itself. But when the center is wrong, then even right behavior is infected. Anybody with an adolescent child who obeys you and then goes off grumbling and cursing knows what I'm talking about, right? So when the center is not right, even obeying may be done in the wrong spirit, in the wrong way, in such a way that does not actually uh, display honor. So uh, with, with all of that, what are the words that, that this passage uh, brings to the parent-child relationship? Now, first of all, we have to admit that the, the, the Greek here explicitly states fathers, uh, not parents. So why? Well, I mean, logically, who is more likely to exasperate and frustrate their kids than their fathers, right? So, so let's, start, let's start with that. Right? I, know, I know that's, that's the case in my home, right? So, so who's the more like, likely to be the culprit? Fathers. Um, but the other reason is because in that culture, the culture in which we're looking at, that was a culture influenced by Hellenistic culture that was conquered by Rome, and that's, that's the, the milieu, that's the context in which they lived. Fathers legally and officially owned their children, owned their children, and were legally, had the privilege and the right to do with their children whatever they so pleased in any context, in any way, in any situation. So when you think about that context, for Paul to speak about, hey, dads, don't, don't anger your children. Your responsibility are really two things. It's really an astonishing word 
an astonishing, clear, clarifying word for the roles of parents and children being as it is in that culture in which they exist. Now, in our culture, there are two ways that we get this wrong in terms of how we parent. The first is excessive discipline, high demands, nagging, condemnation, insensitivity to the pain, to the, the, the issues, the challenges of our children. I think it's easy to see how that can certainly provoke our children to anger. The other way is the opposite, lack of discipline. Um, afraid of their anger, afraid of their disapproval. And really, that's the perfect way to also raise an angry child because one day when they go out into the real world and the real world is not as compliant to their desires and wishes, they will be angry. So what can we, what can we just get out of this passage in terms of what, what the Scripture is saying to, to fathers? And the first thing that I think we can clearly get out of this is that parenting is not the mother's work alone. As a matter of fact, that whole piece about uh, raising a child being the primary responsibility of a mother started with the Industrial Revolution. Prior to that, society was pretty much an agricultural society, and both parents were always available. But with the Industrial Revolution, when men started to go out someplace to a, a warehouse or a factory or someplace else to work, then somehow it evolved from that, and, and generation after generation till today, many men actually feel quite comfortable with the fact that they have nothing to do with the raising of their children. Of course, there's the reality that in many homes are, are broken and, and, and fathers are missing, either incarcerated or simply absent. But there are so many homes where fathers are present and are still absent. I know there have been many times in my life where I felt so consumed with my work and my vocation and the things that I thought were so important that I was absent at key moments to be a, the father my children needed. Our purpose as parents, again, not just fathers, the mothers, our purpose is, is to raise them up to be self-sufficient, co-adults. Now, so many see their job as just raise, but not up. And others just see as a temporary time until they just release them, whatever they turned out to be. But God has placed on us that responsibility. And, and the tools at our disposal are, are, are to teach them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, Paul is saying, when you look at that passage, that if we do not, in fact, raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we are, as a result, provoking them to anger. I remember uh, my wife and I, the first foster child we had back when we lived in uh, Northern California, uh, shortly after our marriage, was a young man. He was 13. Uh, his his uh, biological mother was single, had many struggles, and was eventually arrested. And so uh, the grandmother was a member of our church and asked if we would be willing to, to look after him. And so we, we took him in. It was unofficial. There was no paperwork. 
but he lived with us for close to a year. When he came to us, he had straight Fs, and after a year, he was getting straight As. But there were struggles, there, there were conflicts, and there were tough times. And I remember one time as we were sitting around the table at dinner, he said, uh, why doesn't my mom love me? And we said, well, why do you say that? Of course she loves you. No, not really, because she doesn't correct me. She doesn't teach me like you do. That stuck with me. That stuck with me that real love is not about niceness. Real love is not about being liked. Real love is not about complying to, to, to something that their life will end if they don't get. Real life is about discipline and instruction in the Lord. That's real love. And that's the love that, if done correctly, avoids the provoking and the emptiness that grows up in children. Well, so I'm aware that there's a lot of us here that are parents, so I don't want to spend, and, and I, we got a lot, of talk, a lot to talk about today, uh, but all of us are children. So let's move on to the other side. Can we agree to that, right? All, many of us are parents, but all of us are children. I think all of us can get something out of what Paul is saying to children. You see, the word here is actually the word for a non-adult when he speaks to children. But the principles apply to all of us. And I think, especially in our culture, so many of us struggle with uh, dysfunctional relationships to our parents or relationships that have been somehow clouded or impacted our lives that we, we struggle with for all of our life. And, and you know, I, I, I spoke to a man not that long ago who told me, he told me that he doesn't allow his children to come to church because when he was a child, he was forced to go. And because of that, he, he, he will not let his children go. And I said, I, I, I understand. I, I, could, I can understand how you feel that way. Have you ever thought about that you're still allowing your parents to control your behavior? And, and so that, and that's the way of it, that often because of pain that we've experienced with mistakes and issues in our childhood with our parents, uh, these are important words for us. Now, it's interesting that Paul actually says obey uh, your parents, and then he's mentioning the commandment. I don't know, you may not have ever noticed this or thought about this, but in the commandment, the fifth commandment, about honoring your parents, it says nothing about obey. You ever realize that? It says nothing about love or trust or admiration or enjoyment. See, God was more than, than aware that some parents would not be worthy of that. And it would be wrong and stupid to, to have that admiration and enjoyment and trust and love for someone who was an evil person. So God does not, in the commandment, put an injunction that you need to love and admire and trust and enjoy your parents. He said to honor them. And here Paul is adding, obey in the Lord. So it's, it's an obedience that comes from acknowledging that their instructions, coming from the second part of this passage, are in the Lord, are, are, are purposed towards disciplining them and instructing them in the Lord. And if it's not, then it's irrelevant. See, honor has nothing to do with feelings. It's a tradition to provide long-term loyalty. Adult children can honor and not obey. And as we already talked about, we know the opposite. You know, some children can obey and not honor. 
which is much worse. And certainly, forced obedience, being forced to obey, is not an excuse to disrespect or to show dishonor. Because remember, the reason why we honor is so that it may go well. It's about your character, your growth, and your life. Why? For this is right. That's not much of a... That's not much of an explanation that Paul has given, but he does say that as a result, your life will be blessed in ways that you can't fully understand right now. So how do we honor? Well, here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, it should be culturally appropriate, and there are a lot of different cultural uh, aspects of, of honor. I, I remember first being astonished and surprised as, as a pastor of Hispanic uh, church that the big day when... when uh, Children came to church with their parents. It was not Easter, but was Mother's Day in the Hispanic circle. Right? That was my experience. You know, the, the big day that you go to church with your, with your parents is on Mother's Day. It wasn't Easter. It's not that they don't realize the importance of Easter. It's just that it's about honoring their parents, and that was a, culture, a cultural way that was true. There, there's a lot of other cultural differences. There's a story about King Darius of Persia. You remember he conquered many kingdoms and had a diverse court of people from all over the world. Well, the story goes that one day he pulled aside some people of a certain group and he told them, how big of a reward would you require if, if, uh, for you to eat the bodies of your dead parents? And the response was, there is no number, my Lord. We would never do that. The only way to to properly and with honor dispose of our parents' remains is to burn them. And then he went to another group and asked them, how big of a reward would you need for me to have you to burn the bodies of your dead parents? And they were appalled and said, there is no number. The only way to properly handle the bodies of our dead parents is to eat them. Cultures differ. <laughs> And so certainly honoring our parents has a lot to do with the culture of our family, the culture that we live in. But there's also an aspect that all parents typically have a need to see something of themselves in you. Some people take that to unhealthy extremes. Some parents force their children into athletics or, or specific careers because that's something they always dreamed about for themselves or wanted, or it may be something that they excel at and they want their children to excel at. But all parents would enjoy seeing something of themselves in their children. And one way to honor your parents is to say, you know, mom and dad, one thing that you taught me that I really appreciated is. You'd be surprised how many parents never hear that. There's a, another way to really honor our parents, and that's to forgive them. You know, and, and that could be hard. Uh, but you can get freedom by getting from God what you've been unable to get from your parents. Yeah. See, the, for many, the need to, be, to feel approved, to feel accepted by your parents can hang over you for a long time. Maybe you felt guilty from some poor decision you made early in your life. Maybe you felt rejected and unloved. Maybe you were abandoned and neglected. Maybe you were abused, 
hurtfully and ruthlessly and vilely. Maybe you were judged and criticized daily. Maybe every conversation was an argument. Maybe you felt you were never enough. Your performance, your best, your qualities, your skills were never good enough. Maybe all of that you felt. But here's the thing that really matters. The Heavenly Father's love is not based on your performance. It's based on His his majesty, his power, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his excellence, his perfection. That's upon what his love for you is based. Because of that, I have nothing to prove anymore to anyone. Because of that, we can honor. Really, the only way that we can honor is to receive that unconditional love of God. That love that goes beyond our performance and our abilities and our skills. So time is running. Let's talk about another topic. Let's move on down the passage. Many of us can't get past uh, the word slavery in this passage. In the, the uh, translation I read, it uses the word bondservant instead of slaves. There is, there is context to that. There is a difference between a bondservant and a slave. A bondservant was often a voluntary subjugation because of a financial reason. Bondservant was almost never out of a racial kind of exclusion, and it was almost always temporary. But that's not the point of this passage. And, and you see, because we can't get past uh, the concept of slavery, I think it's important uh, for us to acknowledge that this, this passage has been used by enemies of the gospel in two different ways, and I just want to briefly touch on that. The first way is that this passage was used by clergymen, especially in the South, to justify the existence of slavery. For hundreds of years, pastors and shepherds misappropriated this passage and were complicit in the abuse and vile treatment of people, people who should have been under their care. And that's vile. And I think we need to acknowledge that. Matter of fact, our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, not that long ago, realized that we were complicit in some racial sins and, and, and brought about uh, an overture to acknowledge that and repent of that. Let me read just a portion of it. It said, during the civil rights period, our denomination did not exist during, you know, prior to that, but it did exist during the civil rights period, and unfortunately, we were, some of our leadership, complicit. So it says, during the civil rights period, there were founding denominational leaders in churches who not only failed to pursue racial reconciliation, but also actively worked against it. Then it also says, and they uh, and confessed, that they failed to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry. So that acknowledgement, that overture, uh, passed. Uh, by a, a wide resolution, 861 to 123, which is 86%. So I think there's still some work there to be done. But I think it's acknowledging our failures in so many regards. Now, let me switch gears. There's another way that this passage has been used by enemies of the gospel, and that's that it's been used by some who disbelieve the Word of God and and the gospel, and say that, that this is a sign that this scripture and this Bible is an old-fashioned, irrelevant, uh, 
collection of stories that's not relevant to our life today, or it's old-fashioned, or perhaps even immoral. Now, here's the problem. I can understand how some people may feel some kind of way, especially if in their life they've experienced perhaps some mistreatment or judgment or abuse from coming from a religious point of view. But the fact is that academicians and historians that talk about slavery have a whole different point of view. See, when historians talk about slavery, uh, they, they say really throughout history, it has always been the case that conquerors have abused the conquered and the vulnerable. It has always been the case that, that this has, has, has happened. So why would anybody ever conceive that it ought to be different? And the reason why it came to be is because evangelical Christians came to believe that it was wrong and ought to be different. And so in Exodus 21, 16, what, what I'm saying is Scripture clearly speaks to the evils of slavery. In Exodus 21, 16, Deuteronomy 24, 7, both describe the concept of man-stealing. It's used, it has a different word and, and different translations. But the intent is anyone who steals or kidnaps a person with the intent to sell. And anybody in that transaction or is found in possession of that stolen person is guilty and punishable by death. It seems clear to me, the stance of Scripture. Uh, these are the people of Israel who really are the central people that, that God is working with, even in the New Testament. Could it be that they weren't aware of how heinous, of how vile they themselves felt about slavery and how clearly God worked against it? It was God himself who said, I have heard the cry of my people and I myself will deliver them. In Timothy 1.10, there's a list of sinful activities, immoral activities. Right there in that list is slave traders, clear as day. And then in Philemon, Paul is writing to Philemon about a, a slave called Onesimus. And he, he tells him, accept him back, forgive any wrongdoings, and if he owes you anything, charge it to me. Knowing full well, Philemon would never, ever go through the humiliation of charging Paul for something. But then he, he, he goes on and says, accept him no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. See, similar to how Paul is addressing Philemon, here he's talking to masters or slave owners in a way that is clearly showing what is an astonishing expectation of how believers ought to feel about this concept. By the way, the letter to Philemon was written while Paul was in Ephesus, where he lived with these people. I, always, I found that to be an interesting thing. So, yes, the passage that we just read doesn't... Uh, literally condemn slavery directly. But that's because Scripture already does that clearly. And that's because Paul already speaks to this issue in so many ways. And that's also because the Bible often doesn't address issues like this until after you've met Jesus. See, so many people, they hear about Jesus and they say, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but first 
I have a problem with substance abuse, and I need to deal with that. Or others say, I'd like to be a Christian, but my marriage is broken, and I need to deal with that first. Or some might say, I'd like to be a Christian, but I've lost my job, and I'm, I'm concerned that I may end up homeless, and I, I need to deal with that first. And, and Jesus says, no, come to me as you are. Bring your problems in your hands. I will work on you. I will be your Lord. And yes, that doesn't mean that life is going to be a bed of roses. It doesn't mean that we won't have problems. As a matter of fact, often as he works through those things, our guts spilling out in our hands, it hurts and it's painful. But when we next look down, he's turned it into something joyful and wonderful. He's elevated our lives and given us purpose and joy and meaning in a way we never, ever expected. So often we pass by these verses because we see slave and master and we say, it doesn't apply to me. There's nothing there for me. You see, really, if, uh, if Jesus can't really impact our lives, if Jesus isn't God, who Scripture claims it to be, then what he has to say about slavery doesn't matter or anything else. But Paul brings up this passage for a whole other reason. This passage is not about slavery. This passage is about some, another key relationship in our life that occupies fully a third of our lives. It's about our work relationships. It's about how we handle and address what we do day by day as we live out our lives as believers. Again, not just on the weekends or the evenings, but every moment of our life. And a third of our life we spend in some kind of vocation or occupation. So Paul selects one of the most vulnerable, and in his time, the most common vocation, which was as a slave, and saying, here is how you as a believer who is seeking the fullness of the Spirit and working among that, here is how you can live out the Christ-like life in your circumstance. And that definitely applies to our life. The problem is that we so often have a false view of work. There's two different ways in our culture that we view work. One uh, group views work as a curse. It's just a curse, something you got to do. The real purpose of life is leisure, is what you can do after work. Work is horrible, it's awful, it's a curse upon, a stain upon humanity. Just get it done, get it out of the way, and then enjoy your leisure time. Another, another group of people say, no, work is the meaning of life. Work is what gives you meaning and self-esteem and purpose. <coughs> so there's a, a movie uh, back from my time, back in the 80s, um, Chariots of Fire. I don't know how many of you may have seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, the, the movie is, is highlighting the lives of two athletes, well, actually the whole group of British uh, athletes who were competing for the um, 1924 Paris Olympics. But the two main stories are the story of Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Eric Little was a young man who was preparing to be a missionary in China. And throughout the movie, you see him preaching and see him doing a number of things along with his sister. They were commissioned, brother and sister, to serve in China. Harold Abrams was a Jewish man who was just incredibly driven. There's two quotes that I think are really reflective of the, their attitudes towards their work. 
The first is Eric Little. Jenny is angry at him because Jenny, his sister, is saying that she's, he's spending far too much time and far too consumed with his athleticism, with his running, and he needs to focus on the ministry and on going to China. And Eric, let me find it here. Eric says, Jenny, you've got to understand, I believe God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Harold Abrams is getting a massage from his trainer, and it's kind of a, a very introspective time for him. You see it as he's acting, acting it out, and he says, I'm 24, and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't know what it is that I'm chasing. Now, I got a question for you. Look in your heart. Which of those two is closer to the language of your heart? The Eric is really displaying a Christian view of work. There are aspects of work that have been cursed as a result of our sin. But work itself is not a curse. Life is not about our leisure activities. And meaning and self-esteem is not to be found in jobs. If you try to find yourself in work, you will lose yourself. As we talked about our centeredness and how we view all the key relationships in our life, being as to Christ is what makes it all work together. Martin Luther, uh, famous reformer from 1480s, is attributed to this quote. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Your job is not just a paycheck, nor does it define you, but it is a calling. God has called you to that job. We prayed earlier in our worship about those that are called to law enforcement. It is a calling to be placed in a, in a place where you can be an instrument of God's justice for good and not for ill. Some are called to what may appear to be menial tasks, but we are doing them for the Lord. This is where it's important to remember that Christian life doesn't take a, a break during the work week, and sometimes work is hard. Sometimes work is soul-crushing. Someone said that if you're in the ring and you have the boxers on, don't be surprised if someone hits you. Work can be incredibly difficult, and that's why I think Paul chose to highlight our responsibility to our calling and to those key relationships by using the example of bond servants and slaves. You see, because how can a Christian slave work? By looking God in the eye the whole time. And perhaps by looking their master in the eye and saying, I don't work for you. I work for God. Of course, they would say it very quietly. <laughs> they, could, they could say it. And, and as you work for, for bosses or, or corporations that you feel are demeaning or unfair or unjust, you can look them in the eye and say, I don't work for you. I work for Christ. It's not possible to do outside of God. 
It's not possible to, uh, to be perfect as a husband, wife, mother, father, employee, or employer outside of God's sovereign, unconditional love. The concern, I think, for all of us today is ha have we really taken that into the center of our will and heart? Are we going through our daily relationships just based on what we're able to do on our own? Just what feels right? Just what we think? Just what we saw or learned? Or what other workers around us are doing? I remember I, I had a job when I first got out of college uh, working at UPS, unloading uh, boxes. Uh, when I first showed up at my, at, at my job, I was introduced to the person who would be my direct manager, and I, I kid you not, he looked exactly like Danny DeVito. Everybody knows who Danny DeVito, you know, kind of short, kind of round, bald on top, long hair, with a big New York accent. He looked at me and said, you're a college boy, huh? And I said, yes, I graduated college. And football player, yes, I played football. And he goes, I eat football players for lunch. Get to work. <laughs> and every day, all day, Medina, hurry up, Medina, hurry up. We, we were timed and unloading boxes from UPS that we had to maintain 1,800 boxes an hour. And it was always on my case about more boxes and that labels had to be up. There was one man that I worked with that had this incredible tick that surprised me, you know, like a, kind of like a nervous action that he would do automatically, didn't even think about it. Whenever there was a long box, you know, the kind of long box that you would expect to be filled with a fluorescent lamp, he would take down the box and smash it against the side of the truck until he heard a tinkle and he put it down. And I remember thinking, you know, I may not like this job, but I'm going to do it well, and I'm going to do it right. And at a certain point, God will call me to some other job. And he did. And he has. And sometimes God's call didn't, see, didn't feel right, didn't look right, and sometimes it hurt. But it always blessed me. My call and invitation to all of us today is to seek God's call in keeping Christ the center of all the relationships that really matter. Because only then can you live the life that's promised that all will go well. Lord, we're grateful for your word and for how you are so intimately concerned with every aspect of our life. Work in our hearts and in our lives. We invite you, Lord, to truly help us live as you're the center of our life that all our decisions and all our actions and all our relationships are as to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.